You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back, everyone, to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode 17 called Second Chance Learning, Escape Rooms, and Pecha Kuchas. In this episode, we'll talk about the pros and cons of second chance learning, how to incorporate escape rooms in education, and a presentation style known as Pecha Kucha. As always, we'll wrap up with a tech battle royale involving tech tools that promote organization in the classroom. Here in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, we've had a lot of rain lately. Actually, the whole summer has been pretty much rain with a little bit of sunshine sparkling through at brief periods of time. Yeah, it's been like the worst stretch of weather I've seen in a long time. But this weekend was awesome, so hopefully we've broken the spell a little bit. Why am I talking about rain right now? Something coming down in education by storm, bringing a lot of rain right now, is second chance learning. And our school, I know, has picked up this practice uh, over the last year. Uh, We did a lot of meetings last year, and we implemented second chance learning school-wide this year. Yeah, it's a big thing uh, everywhere, not just our school, but it's it's pretty new to us. So we thought it would be fitting if we brought this to the podcast today. If you haven't heard of Second Chance Learning, I'll just walk through really quick uh, at least some of what I know about it. Really, it's just a, a strategy that provides additional opportunities for students to learn. I think that's the biggest message in everything that Second Chance Learning is. It sort of just asks the question or asks, what is the purpose of school? And obviously, the purpose is to allow students to learn. And then it says, shouldn't we give them as many chances as possible. The gist of it is, at least for us, as we've adopted it at the high school, Right. Um, normally the, you, as a teacher, you set the day of a test, usually at the conclusion of a unit, some kind of a summative thing, and, and that's it. That's the last chance that a student has to demonstrate their understanding of all that material. Uh, well, second chance learning kind of flips that around and says, well, why should that be the last chance? If, we, if the goal is to just get students to learn stuff, does it really matter when they learn it? Should they have the opportunity to revisit that material, go back at a later date past when you've set that deadline and show that they have learned it? And should that count the same? Should it count less? There's all kinds of really interesting questions here. And it's interesting because it kind of just makes you as a teacher sort of reevaluate everything that school is because it's so different for so many of us. Right. And I kind of transitioned to my new position before this was really being talked about. But as I reflect on just what I heard right now coming out of your mouth. Sure. I almost equate to what we did, you know, five, ten years ago as kind of like a trick question, multiple choice question. And I know I'm guilty of making that tough question that, you know, I'm really trying to see if they really grasp the concept. But really, by only allowing them to attempt certain skills one time... It's almost like a trick question because you're setting them up to fail almost. Right. For me. I mean, yeah, 90% of the students are going to get a passing grade. 95% of the students are going to get a passing grade. But Mm -hmm. just because they got a passing grade, are they really happy with what they have accomplished to this point? Can they do better? Everyone has reasons, and there's thousands of good reasons out there to explain why you didn't do as well on a an assessment or an activity you know the outside of the classroom factors right. family life uh the activities that you got going on maybe health issues all that stuff and i feel like 
Second Chance Learning really embraces the fact that people are busy, people get sick, all these environmental factors that are out there or, you know, personal factors that are out there. And it allows students to get where we want them. And that's mastery or at least proficiency of a skill. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it is kind of hard to argue with as, as a teacher because it makes sense. Like you said, if someone's sick or they're on some kind of crazy vacation, where in the past you would have said, too bad, September 24th, that's the day you're supposed to know all this stuff by. And if you don't know it by September 24th, well, too bad. It doesn't even matter if you were to go back and learn it afterwards. That almost sounds, it sounds a little bit silly because you should just want them to learn it. So if there's outside issues, this kind of takes that into account. Although um, it does bring up all kinds of questions, all kinds of feelings uh, from the teachers, of course, because it is so different. Um, and it makes you, it's it's a little bit unnerving because you sort of feel like, well, that's not how school's supposed to work. There's supposed to be a test on this day. How can they just take a test afterwards? I know for us personally here at our high school and the middle school did a similar thing. Each department got to set their own standards and what the redos or what the second chances should look like. And we met all year long as departments and we made lists of how each teacher your grades and how you'd be willing to change. And there's a lot of arguing, a lot of back and forth. Some people feel really strongly on one end, which is, well, yeah, kids should be able to redo work as many times as they need to up until essentially the end of the school year, I guess, or the end of a marking period. And other teachers feel completely the opposite on the other end where, no, I say, you know, the test is this day. And if you don't know it by then, too bad. We're moving on. All right. So we give them a second chance. All right. They got a 55% on their first go around. So the second time they take it, I'm just interested because I heard multiple different policies where students can retake it and whatever their highest of the two attempts, that's their new grade. Or the highest you could get is a 70 Right. There's all kinds of different ones out there. So, And one of the reasons why people often choose the highest grade that you could get is a 70% is because is it fair to the student that studied their rear end off and they got a 99? But this kid that... I should probably use a better example. They got an 85. Well, How about that? Yeah, no, I and get what you're this, saying. And then this kid takes a retest or second chance at it and gets a 94. Is it fair that the person who studied, did it right the first time, got an 85 and the second one got a 94? And to me, this whole thing kind of sounds like standards-based grading or competency-based learning. Sure. Because... That's what second chance learning is kind of setting you up for because in those types of grading uh, schemes, standards-based grading and competency-based learning, the whole thing is to take away the comparison of the individual student. Well, it's about mastery of your... of. Like you said, it's for each individual student. What have they learned and when have they learned it by? It shouldn't be about, you know what I mean, that fairness factor. So so basically, it's comparing yourself to your former self. Yes, not to everybody else. Okay, so my question here is, is this leading to a grade scheme change? Are we going to get away from the out of 100% and go to this competency or standards-based grading? Is it okay to have this hybrid model where we're taking percentages and we're incorporating something that is preaching uh, standards-based grading or competency-based learning. Right. Well, it's kind of weird. It's sort of getting shoehorned in with the percentage style grades that we use now because you're right, it doesn't fit with that really because the focus is or should be is supposed to be the whole philosophical background is really just focused on mastery, not so much a timeline or a percentage, but, you know, compared to your former self, oh, good, now you can do this. Uh, So it is a little bit awkward to try and fit it in with those percentages, I guess. So we kind of spewed out all this information. Let's let's identify the pros and let's identify the cons that we could kind of come up with. 
Right. All right. So one of the pros is it allows students to better themselves. Uh, it allows them to have a second chance to show mastery rather than, you know, sinking on that first exam of the year and just becoming totally deflated. Yeah. Well, and part of showing mastery is it really places the focus on what school should be about, which is learning. If, if they know that when they sit down to take that test, you know, maybe they had a rough week or maybe other stuff was going on. If they know that's not their only chance that the next week they've got a bunch more time and they've got a plan to do better, then they can go back and try again and really show and really show what they've learned, it just kind of enforces that and lets them know like, yeah, the important thing here is that you've learned it, not necessarily that you've learned it by today. So motivation is also a built-in, you know, pro that we kind of just talked about. Right. Any other pros? Yeah, I think a, a big one that is it kind of allows, uh, I don't know if wiggle room is the right term, but it allows for students to kind of recover. I, I, I always think of a student who just is bad at taking tests. And for a long time, that's where the majority of our grades came from, still is, but we're slowly shifting that. Say you sit down for that first chemistry exam, it's stressful, it's a really hard class, and you don't do so good. Maybe the stress gets to you and you get a 62. Well, for a lot of students, that 62 kind of sets the stage then for that whole course and they, they feel hopeless and then there's a lot of stress for the next test and then do bad on that one and it's just kind of this snowball thing whereas if if they know they get a second crack at it it alleviates some of that because they know that they have a chance to recover from the whole thing so i think that's a pro i think another pro that goes with that second chance is a positive learning environment it, it kind of sets the the stage saying that you know what we're not always going to be at our best self uh, we understand this, but what we want to take away from this is we want to get you learning skills that way you could apply them later. And I feel like that just makes the climate in the classroom a little bit less competitive and a little bit more nurturing. It's true. Yeah, it makes every it sh should make the students feel much more comfortable uh, because, like you said, it sort of wraps around ra wraps back around to the whole idea of it just makes school about learning. So. Let's flip this and let's talk about some of the cons. And one that sticks out to me is just students abusing the system. And I'm, I'm not going to lie here. If, if I knew I always got a second chance when I was back in you know, grade school, I would definitely prioritize my time a little differently. Yes. So for me, you know, I was in a couple honors classes, maybe an AP course, and I know that I have an AP test and an honors test same day. I'm going to probably spend most of my time really trying to tackle that AP course because I know I have a second crack at the, the honors course. How do we get away from this problem? Well, I mean, that's an interesting problem. And that actually, I remember one of our meetings that comes that came up from for a bunch of teachers. The flip side of that argument would be, does that matter? And I'm not saying how I feel one way or the other, but who really cares if they prioritize one test over another as long as they come back and they take the second chance on the one that they didn't give that focus to? They still learned it, you know what I mean? They still got to come back and show that they've demonstrated that thing wasn't on when everybody else did, but maybe that doesn't matter so much. Okay, so one person that it is going to impact are the teachers, the group of teachers that have to grade things twice. Yes. So a very poor effort. They have to regrade that for the second chance effort, which they the student probably should have gave the first time. That's so in a educational realm where teachers are very busy, we keep having more and more piled up on us, uh, especially like during, you know, if you're 11th or 12th grade teacher, let's just say 12th grade, and you have 35 college recommendation letters to write, and yet you have now two sets of tests that you got to grade, the first round and the second round to go with these 35 education, you know, recommendation letters. Right. 
Yeah, that's the one thing I'll say now that we're a month into doing this is that it definitely is a lot more work for the teacher. I teach a couple AP courses and those students especially are just super grade motivated. You know, they want to see that that 90 or better and if it's not there, that's a big problem for them. So there's there's a lot of those students especially, um, but across the board too, I've heard other teachers say that for sure take advantage of this, maybe for the better, maybe for not, but they it's it's a lot of work because I've had to make second versions of tests. It's a lot of regrading tests you've already graded. You grade that one big first stack and then 10 days later, you've got a new stack of retakes. I'm very interested I'm very interested to see if this really revolutionized how tests are created. I, I have a feeling this is gonna push more teachers to go back to the, you know, fifty multiple choice questions. Yeah. Uh, because A, they're easy to grade. You could go Scantron, but now that we're getting with Google Forms where we can automatically grade, you have other uh, help me out, LMS systems, learning oh, yeah, management sure. systems that you can have students take quizzes and get instant feedback. Are we gonna be moving to that? I know when I created my tests, I would not make more than, you know, 30% of the test multiple choice questions. And even yeah. even that to me is pretty high. I, I'd make sure there's stuff on reading graphs because I was a science teacher, reading graphs or um, being able to manipulate data. I always like to include questions that were real uh, life problem specific so sure they would use the skills that they learned to, to think real world and they would have to defend their answer and that was my test but what is that takes a lot of time to write for you and a lot of time to grade so now with retakes maybe you reconsider some of that yeah i mean i i feel like that would be you know an injustice for students i i, I don't think that would help the average student really demonstrate mastery. I mean, does multiple choice really demonstrate mastery? Because if you're any of four choices, you have a 25% chance of getting something right that you have no clue what you're thinking. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. There's I, I feel like there are some rough patches here, some edges that, that needs to be worked out. That's one of the negative side effects for sure is the time and then teachers that kind of cut corners, not necessarily because they they want to, but just because you're forced to because it can be so time consuming to write second versions of tests and regrade them. I will say though, um, at least the policy that the science department at our school has adopted, uh, the students only have 10 school days after a grade has been returned to retake it. So it's not never ending that they can do this. There is some limitation. Uh, so it sort of limits at least the amount of time that you have to be thinking and worrying about regrading things. And I know some teachers have that have now said, okay, well, I'll release the grade electronically, but I'm not going to hand this test back until that 10 days is up so that you don't have to rewrite a whole second test. Because if anyone wants to do a retake, they c they'll just retake the exact same test. So they test. don't get to actually see the test. They don't get to see the test. Wow. That, that's... Uh... It's weird, right? Yeah, that's an interesting way of doing it. But yeah. I mean, if they don't have that feedback, I know. Well, that's are they really learning? That's that's what I said too. And with the AP kids, they they want the feedback so badly. Like they really want to see. They really need to see how they did on that test. I've I've been handing their tests back and rewriting a second one for them, just because it's so uh, there's such a just a big draw for it. And I I can't rightfully turn them down. You know what I mean? They really do just want to learn and do better. But it's definitely it raises a lot of interesting questions. So I guess the takeaway for me for second chance learning is if our goal is to educate students to be able to perform a skill at a mastery level, really nothing else should matter. You should really just go out and adopt a policy that allows the students to have the maximum opportunity and the best chance of learning and showing or demonstrating the particular skills that you're setting out for them to learn. Mm -hmm.
You can follow Got Teched outside the podcast at gottech.com or on Twitter at WeGotTeched. I was recently passing through our teacher's faculty lounge trying to make some copies before class. I forgot to make some and I was super rushed, didn't have time to go down to the good copiers. Uh, our setup here is that the, the best copy machines are a little bit far from at least the science wing. So it's so in a huge rush, went to the teacher's lounge, get some copying done. I usually try to avoid that because there's always people hanging out, conversations. I get pulled in and it sort of sidetracks me, but I had no choice on this particular uh, recent occasion. And as I'm in there kind of getting the copies made, I just was just sort of listening to some of the conversation taking place. And one thing that people were talking about kind of caught my eye because it was something that we've both done together and worked with a lot in an educational sense, and that is uh, escape the rooms or room escapes. People call them different things. Uh, there was a group in there talking about it because they had recently gone to one uh, in Philadelphia, which is pretty close to where uh, our high school is located. And they were asking the question, is there a way that you could bring a room escape to a classroom in an educational sense? Which I thought, one, it's a great question. And two, like I said, it's just funny because it's something that we've kind of thought about and done and something you're super into. Um, and it would it makes sense to bring that to the podcast today and talk about it a little bit. Just in case you're listening and you don't know what a room escape is, it's really just a game. Typically, uh, with a group of people, with a group of friends, you buy tickets and you go to these places that host a room escape. And it's all built around you go into this room with a group of 10, 15 people. And in a certain amount of time inside the room, you have to find clues and solve riddles and find keys. And eventually it leads to one final key that unlocks the room and you escape. And it's like winning if you get out of the room in the period of time you're supposed to. It's just supposed to be like a fun thing. Super fun thing. It's awesome. Yeah, really good time. And if you get nothing else out of this segment, everybody should just go do one of these just in your own personal time because it's it's just a cool different kind of activity to do. But it uh, kind of transforms itself oddly well in an educational sense where students actually have to engage with content while they escape a room that is your classroom. And I know you've built a ton of these things, guys. Yeah, I, I've built almost a dozen, I guess, of these uh, physical ones. And then we also do some digital ones as well. And, and uh, the number one thing I got to say before we get into explaining a little bit about the escape room is it needs to be content based because if you are not bringing content in what you're really accomplishing is maybe a team building exercise which isn't totally a bad thing especially at the beginning of the year it might be good to get them accustomed to your classroom so that is definitely i need to throw that out there but what we want to talk about today is how do you bring content into a digital escape room because I think that's what really makes it worth it. Yeah, I mean, that's the best part is that you're really, I mean, you're bringing a game to your classroom where the students kind of have to learn stuff in order to escape. So it's a great motivator because they might be more invested and more engaged in something that they don't wouldn't otherwise be super into just because they want to win the game. They want to escape the room. I, I could see this being a lot better in a PLC, ran in a PLC, so you could break up the work and kind of come back and have multiple people check over the work but i'm going to tell you how i did it just working solo on my first one which was on a uh it was a digital or no i'm sorry it was an escape the room that had to do with going into world war ii so we got done with world war one we we're heading into world war ii and to this date it's still my favorite i will i will just throw that out there so this would be like a history social studies kind of lesson right okay 
Uh, the first thing that I had to teach myself is how to be organized. And Nick will attest to this. Uh, we shared a space together. His desk was pushed against my, de my desk and they were facing each other for 10 years. And his desk is always very pristine. Organized folders, paper clips, and piles. Yeah, I spent most of my day just trying to keep Geis' papers off of my desk from spilling over. So he's he's not lying. It wasn't that bad, but it was pretty bad compared to his. But <laughs> anybody's desk is pretty bad compared to his. <laughs> So if you would picture a sixth grader's locker and you would open it up, that was kind of what my desk looked like. Yep. I would make castle pillar piles. But for these escape the rooms, I had to teach myself how to be organized. And the way that I did that is I would use a Google Doc and I would make a table. And I would allow six boxes on the left and these boxes were my content boxes. What were the six things that the teacher I was working with and myself wanted to get through to the students. These are the major themes. And for these escape the rooms, I tend to use them as introductory lessons. So put away the guided reading with the chapter notes and all that stuff and bring them into an escape room. And what we did is we picked six topics. So for heading into World War II, we would pick famous people. We would pick allied powers or the different powers that were in the World War. We would pick maybe causes of World War II. Uh, we would look at some maps statistics how many soldiers died how many assets were lost those types of things okay world leaders would be another one so that would be our six and i'm going to just explain the uh, famous people that were in the world wars so this is like each of those content topics becomes a clue or an element of a clue, basically? Yeah, yeah, we're working towards making a clue. So the first step is to get your content, all right, your content headings. Your second step is to get your resources. So for the famous people, and I can't remember if we did World War One and World War Two famous people or just World War Two, but uh, I remember Walt Disney was one of those people. Okay. All right, so Walt Disney drove an ambulance because he was he was 16 years old and he wasn't able, or 15 years old and he wasn't able to actively be an armed member of the war. Oh, no even way. Even though he tried. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, on the side of the ambulance, he would draw cartoon characters. So <laughs> wow. he always had it in him. So what we would do is we'd take nine people, nine famous people that they would know. We figured that, you know, if it was just anyone's name, they wouldn't be engaged by that. They want to have some type of relationship with that person, whether it's just knowing that he's a famous person or if we had someone that was local, we would have probably put them in if that person was known. So you mean just like a name that kids would recognize so they kind of know, oh, these are famous people. Correct. Yeah. All right. We used a couple baseball players. Sure. We used a president, um, those types of things. Yeah. So... Then, as they would look around the room, in our room, we decorated with propaganda posters, which had nothing to do with the escape the room. They were just there. They were so red herrings. Just random, like, war propaganda stuff posted around the room. Recruitment posters, things yeah. like that. And we were just trying to get the students, like, in that time period, to embrace that time period. And... Some of the other things that were hanging up were some of our resources that they needed for the other clues. But as they went around the room, they figured out the order of these pictures. So picture the Google nine dot uh, icon that allows you to go into your drive, your email. The little checker, yeah. checkerboard thing, right? The checkerboard yeah. thing. So it's a three by three row. So they got they gathered clues that showed them how these pictures were supposed to be arranged. Specific order of person in each spot. 
So the famous people pictures were like printed out around the room as well? Yeah, and they okay. had to gather them. Right. They put them on a table, so it was a three-by-three three box. Laid them into the three-by-three three checkerboard. Right. Got it. In a particular order. And then after that, as they started to open some of the other boxes, they would get descriptions of people with their name. And what they had to do is look at the picture to get some of the clues, look at the Mm. paragraph to get some clues and come up with the proper order. And on the back of that description was either a number or a mathematical symbol. So if you go to the top left, that person had the number six. The middle person had minus sign. Uh. And then the person on the top right had four. So six minus four equals two. And as they solved all three of those equations from left to right, they got a three-digit code, which opened a three-digit number lock, which got them more information to help solve the next puzzle. Okay. So I think there's two important things that I I at least want to point out there. One is that kids had to read information about these historical figures, which there's there's the content piece, which of course is most important. Also, I think if you've never been to an escape room, a lot of it is conducted through locks, different types of number locks where you spin the little dial and based on that combination, which they get from the clue, the checkerboard thing, just as one example, it opens a lock of some kind of box, right? And then inside the box is another clue or another key or just another thing that leads into the next component. Correct. And so they would go through all six content pieces before they would get their final clue, which they had to solve to get out to get the key to get out of the room. And and that's really, it's just six of those that gets you, each one gets you into another box, which gives you another clue, which they have to solve and work through content. Now, the beauty is, is when you go into your lessons throughout that whole uh, World War One, World War Two chapters, you can draw back from the escape the room and bring those pieces back into the classroom. So, uh, for example, If you're talking allied powers and you have a lesson on allied powers, all right, so maybe they bring up the same map that we used in the escape the room and they talk a little bit about it. And what's really cool is students, they'll they'll come up and say, hey, didn't we uh, get that in the escape the room? And then that's how you know that it's doing its job. Yeah. For example, uh, uh, there was a poem, Poppy Fields. Field of Poppy, Flanders Fields. Ah, okay. All right, Flanders Fields. And that poem was brought up later in class, and I just remember the teacher coming and telling me that everyone knew the title of that. Uh, Ironically, I forgot it for Uh. (laughs) a couple (laughs) seconds, but everyone knew the title of it and kind of knew the symbolic gesture of the the poppy. They knew it. Yeah, well, it sticks in your head, right? Because it's just this unique classroom experience of doing this game, you know, playing this game that kind of helps to cement those things. Yeah, so, I mean, these types of learning experiences, which allows students to, really, it's, some would argue that it's game-based learning because the whole lesson is is a game based on learning outcomes and you want them to get to the end. Yeah. All right, other people would say, if you kept track of the time, you're also using gamification factors or game-like elements because you have a scoreboard and everyone's competing to get the best time. Right. Uh, Some people would rather leave the game uh, mechanics out and just focus on the game-based learning, but here we have a unique opportunity to bring both of these uh, highly studied, at least in recent years, methods of best practice 
into the classroom. And this is something that you could use over and over and over again. And I think it's kind of hard to describe some of the clues, but I definitely, one of the best ways, if this sounds like something you want to try and adopt for your classroom is you just got to go do a real one. Go go pay, go find, go Google, whatever your closest local room escape is. They're popping up everywhere just to get a sense of what some of the clues are. I know you, I've, I saw you doing one one time where you actually project hints on a screen in the classroom because in most room escapes, there's a TV and, and some administrator from outside can give you little hints if you get stuck. So all sorts of little details like that. You can really just figure out yourself by going and trying an actual one and then adopting that to fit some of this stuff in your class. Right. And another way that you could do it is there there is a uh, company called Breakout EDU that will sell you a kit and they have certain breakouts on their site, which you could pay a subscription for. I would suggest going out and, you know, taking a look at what's in that breakout box and see if you could somehow come up with your own. I know Amazon is a good way to keep costs down. That's where I get most of my stuff. But I will tell you, if you don't want to have to make up your own uh, escape room, I would go over and I would check out Breakout EDU because they have a bunch of topics already made and they're tested and they have a great support team over there and they will they will help you out. So uh, go out, try a couple of these escape the rooms, bring them into your classrooms and, and see how well students engage and collaborate. This week I had the opportunity to work with a teacher who really allowed me to kind of come in and talk her into using technology. And she's a fantastic teacher. She uh, She's loved by her students. She's known as a hard worker. And uh, she's really passionate about what she does. And we just got to talking up in the media center about something called a Pecha Kucha. Pecha Kucha. Pecha Kucha. I like it already just because it's super fun to say. I'm in. Yeah, so... What is a Pecha Kucha? It is a presentation style. It's the idea of having 20 slides where each slide takes 20 seconds. And the brilliant thing about this is there are hardly any words on that slide. Usually it's pictures, graphs, things like that. Every once in a while, there'll be a cartoon with a couple words on there. Okay. But these 20 slides really paint a story. And the way that everything is connected is through your words. You have to use your words. Mind you, the, the slides, they uh, switch out every 20 seconds. So they're, pl- they're, all, they're like automatically set to change. And by words, you mean like I'm the presenter. So I got to know, okay, there's that picture. I'm talking for 20 seconds and then it's moving on. So I got to be ready to get out what I know and also move on with the picture. 20, 20 slides, 20 seconds, yeah. six minute and 40 minute, yeah, six minute and 40 second presentations. Wow. I think this is awesome. Let's, let's, let's break this down real quick first of all six minutes and 40 seconds is a long time but when you look at 20 seconds it's less intimidating so you have 20 seconds to get through a slide if you have a whole bunch of words you're not going to be able to do that but knowing that you're on a time limit it's going to make you bring out the best of every slide 
in yeah. a condensed form. I'm talking no fluff here. No fluff. No awkward silence unless you make it awkward yourself. So you really got to know your topic. This is something that you have to rehearse, that you have to get familiar with the content. So you really have to know what you're talking about. Well, that's like kind of the cool part, because if you just told a high school class that they have to do a six and a half minute presentation, that's a long time for them to get up and speak. That's like freak out moment for them hearing that. But you're right, the rotating pictures, it's kind of like each one, not only, I mean, it obviously it forces you to have to really know your stuff, but you sort of get like a little fresh start with each picture. Because even if you maybe you mess one up, eh, I got the next one coming, I can sort of pick it back up there. It's a cool way to run a presentation. All right, you have a kid or a whole bunch of students in your class. They're broken into groups. What is the number one mistake students do when they present? Uh, I don't know, probably not over-talking. Well, they could over-talk. Or they could read everything off the slide. Yeah, reading off the words, yeah. Word for word. And that's a huge problem. Because what are they really, does it prove that they really know it? Or does it prove that Sally wrote the slide and, and Jeffrey is reading it word for word? Yeah, well, we always, you know, we've all heard and all tried that uh, one of the best ways to get someone to learn is to make them, make a student teach it to somebody else. But sometimes if it's not set up the right the right way, that kind of activity just kind of falls into, let me look it up online and copy down what whatever's there. And like you said, just sort of reading it. So this way, if it's just a picture, it kind of forces you to understand it enough to actually talk about it. So let's talk a little bit about how we can kind of take the, the Pecha Kucha and say we don't want each student to have a six minute and 40 second presentation. How can we break this down differently? So it's not a traditional Pecha Kucha, but it's still 20 slides, 20 seconds, six minutes and 40 seconds long. If you have groups of three, okay, and each uh, student has to decide how they're going to break up this presentation. So it's done in equal parts. Yeah, you could do it that way. But another thing I thought about is why not make a screencast out of it. You could just still have the Pecha Kucha, 20 seconds per slide. Uh, you can have a screencast out of it, and then you could post these screencasts to a Google site, and then you can say, okay, everyone's homework is to go visit three Pecha Kuchas that you didn't do and, and uh, take notes on it and be ready to share one of these three tomorrow. That's awesome. Yeah, it turns it into a student project, but brings in the technology, and then it's a learning experience for everybody else, because if you have them watch each other's videos, that could be really cool. Yeah, and so, I mean, just imagine you doing, uh, for example, this Pecha Kucha project was on themes of the 1920s, like social issues in the 1920s, and they were going to do this to lead up to the reading of Great Gatsby. So now, by having all these Pecha Kuchas, you get students involved in the era a little bit, they're kind of being taken back there, they can get their minds wrapped around that era, prohibition, uh, you know, all the topics back there, and then when they go into the book, they could fully grasp you know, maybe some of the conflicts and the themes and the just the time period itself. That's awesome. And it, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking too, really this enforces something that's not content-based, just like life skill-based, which is just good presentation skills. Because so, so many people's careers involve getting up and speaking with something behind you. And I know, especially as like a young teacher early on, one of the biggest mistakes that we make and, and students are guilty of this. And it'd be great if you could have this experience while still in school before you actually have a job. And that is actually learning that it's better to put less words on that slide and just use the images, but B, you need to be the one that's engaging and, and kind of keep things flowing. So it teaches just a lot of really great presentation and public speaking skills separate from the course content. So I'm, I'm into Pecha Kuchas. I'm going to, well, I guess I can't do it myself right away because I'd be stealing from that teacher, right? Do I have to wait a year before I start well, doing them? You could present in a Pecha Kucha I way. I could do it. That's true. 
And uh, I know that you have that amazing race at the end. You could bring that into the amazing race as yeah. well. Maybe the final activity. But uh, just so everyone knows, I just threw this topic out there. There was no show notes that were... Uh, you know, written up prior to this. And uh, Nick just nailed the number one, um, I guess, use of the Pecha Kucha, which is in business. Yeah. But they're also showing up in bars as well. I was I was told this, Whoa. that some people use this as a form of improv or comedy, and uh, it's becoming more entertainment-like as well. Oh, yeah, where they project something behind them and use that to make the joke. I think I've seen not this exact thing, but something like it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so go out there, get some, uh, do some research on Pecha Kuchas, and uh, maybe consider bringing that into your classroom. It's time for the Chick Battle Royale! That's right, it's time for the Tech Battle Royale. This is where Nick and I go mano y mano, head to head. He's the annoying ghost, I'm Pac-Man, going after the little delicious treats. But we're going to throw down like no one else's business, and we're going to get right to it. Some of our categories that we can feature in our tech battles are productivity, video screencasting, learning management system, organizational tools, add-ons, fun and games, bunch of other stuff. Let's get straight into it. I'm anxious to take back the win from you guys. Here we go. Interesting. This one's made for me. Again, although I, I do remember I said that last episode too, and you still somehow beat me, but we have today organizational tech tools, which I don't know if you know this, this came up earlier. Organization happens to be my specialty. Yeah, okay. So, I don't know. It's going to be, might be a tough one for you. And actually, I've got a really cool idea for this already, just uh, within the theme of organization. Do you have something in mind for yourself too? I do, sir. Yes. All right. Well, you won the last one of these, I think. So, do you want to, what do you want to do? Go first or should I go first? You're organized. I am plentiful. Oh, I man. have many. Go for it. You're taking... <laughs> All right, I'll kick it off. Uh, my tool, my organizational tech tool is called Pin Up. It's it's really simple. I like that theme recently of tech stuff that just does one thing, but does it really simply and does it really super well. And Pin Up does just that. It really, in a nutshell, it's just an electronic or a web-based, a browser-based bulletin board. The whole idea of you know putting up little sticky notes as a to-do list or as, as a way to share. You can collaborate with Pin Up where multiple people can edit the same board. Uh, so if, if you look at the sc- uh, at the screen, this is at http colon backslash backslash pinup.com is where you'll find this. It literally it just has the background of a you know your typical cork-based bulletin board and you click a little add button and it pops in your standard yellow sticky note. Just on the screen, you can type, you can add pictures, change fonts, lists, formatting. You can change the color of the sticky note if you prefer, the, prefer it green or all sorts of different colors. And you just keep track of whatever you need to. If this is organizational for yourself, like I said, that could be your to-do list. If it's organizational for your students, maybe you want them to keep track of what they have to complete for a group project there so they can remove uh, the sticky notes as they go and everybody knows what's been accomplished and what hasn't. Like I said, it's just, uh, it does one thing, but it does it really super well. So pinup.com, that's what I'm sticking with. All I got to say to that is whoever came up with post-its, you're a genius. That and Q-tips. Yeah, I mean, really, I don't know 
what else what else you need besides those two things oh. i'll tell you what else you need oh what else do you need you need coggle coggle is mine that's c-o-g-g-l-e and coggle is a collaborative way to make mind maps and flow charts so picture yourself you you want to come up with brainstorming for anything you're working on an engineering product that you want to um there's steps that you got to go through and you want to make your feature word or maybe that's your key uh i don't know product name sure so you would put that in the center and then coggle lets you create like these little arms that come off and stay organized that way notice i use the keyword organized in my defense here so that should get me bonus points anyway so or say we're doing story development this is a tool for all educational subjects if you just need to get organized for example in english if you're going over character development or characters within the story the story could be the little middle thing and then you could draw these little webs coming out the cool thing about this tool is it allows you to be creative with it if you wanted to curl curvy line you can do that i even saw some examples that had people drawing a picture with these arms that fit the theme that they were talking about so is this more meant for students like is it super user friendly or does it take like a certain skill level to use this thing it's super user friendly you do not need an account for this so i I just got to throw that out there and this is useful for teachers and students if teachers want to have some type of infographic that shows a level of organization that they want to talk about in one of their lectures or they want to copy and paste it and put it into their project-based learning activity they could do that sure if students want to show that they understand a topic and they understand the steps in order of a certain topic they can make one and share it with the teacher as well i don't know I'm sick of these these uh, these like mind mapping tools, these flowchart generators. There's so many of these. I don't know if Coggle's going to do anything special for me, but it just sounds like the next just a dime a dozen. Does not impress me. I got to be honest. I'm not going to lie either. Post-it notes have been around for a long time, and I like my post-it notes. I don't know if this counts for a, a, something to argue for pinup, but it, it, I don't know. I think it might. How about the uh, environmentally sound aspect of pinup.com? Do you know how many? I think post-it notes are one of like the major contributors to, to paper waste in this planet. And we've got to conserve, man. How about we go electronic with our post-it notes, save a whole bunch of paper, save the world? All right, why don't we just make post-it notes biodegradable and then we could save the world and still buy post-it notes? Yeah, in a dream world, we make them biodegradable, but that's not happening. And then when they are, they're super expensive. Schools aren't going to be buying those things anyways. Hold up, time out. So are you trying to tell me that you're winning because of environmental factors? Yeah, man, that's right. I think I got hosed on this one. But you got to give in. You know it's true because yours, I mean, if you're making like a mind map that's going to be electronic anyways you have no defense against the environmentally sound aspect of pinup.com give in uh, sounds like i'm taking the win this time with the environmentally friendly pinup.com so you can get rid of your your paper uh sticky notes and switch over to the digital version and if you want to try out coggle you can uh, give it a shot for some some mind maps and some flow charts here comes my victory speech Henry Ford once said, Thinking is the hardest work, which is probably the reason why so few engage in it. As teachers, it is a vital part of our job to educate our students while teaching them the joys and power of thinking. What is the purpose of being an educator if not to teach our students how to think? I would argue that there is no more important goal in education than this. Second Chance Learning, while it does introduce many challenges, has great potential to show students the power of thinking about and learning from their prior mistakes. Gamified lessons like room escapes and engaging presentation styles like Petra 
kuchas allow even more opportunities to teach the power of thought. So give some of your own thought to some of these ideas for one of your upcoming lessons. And most importantly, thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at WeGotTech or follow along on our website, gottech.com. Until next time.